Welcome everybody to another Monday Night Live. My name is Derek Arden and today I've got my guest uh, David Heiner. I've known uh, David or Dave for uh, 20 years. He's one of the first people I met when I joined the uh, Professional Speaking Association. I knew nobody and he made me most welcome which was absolutely fantastic and that's why I stayed and had lots of fun and met some very interesting and funny people. In fact David's a funny person but I have to tell you first of all he's a brummy and for those of you overseas particularly Tim in Texas um, I need to explain what a brummy is because it's not an infectious disease it's not something you have to be careful of catching but it is somebody that comes from Birmingham and Birmingham's only 100 miles from London and Dave and I have quite different accents as you'll notice and I'm sure Dave will put on a real brummy accent for you and I'll put my Cockney one on, uh, mate, if I can, to do to introduce you. But um, David's spoken to 1.2 million people, 700,000 young people. And I really do admire and look up to Dave because he speaks to people who really need it in deprived areas, to kids who need some motivation and some self-esteem. And um, only last month, he spoke to 50,000 people all in one go in 30 schools. Everybody was there on the, uh, from the school, uh, 50,000 people on Zoom. That was absolutely amazing. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining us. I'm uh, sorry I haven't invited you before, but you've been so difficult to get hold of. Um, we've missed you, but uh, welcome to the 106th edition. Um, how's, you, things, how, how's things in Brummyland? Well, I've, I've had both of my jabs and I've been tested and uh, I'm definitely a Brummie. Uh, the best way to describe a Brummie is we look like Kung Fu Panda and we sound like a Peaky Blinder. I don't know if you have Peaky Blinders yet in America, but you soon will. Whole world's talking about them. So, uh, <laughs> but apart from that, yeah, I am actually in my hometown of Birmingham, home city of Birmingham this evening because I'm at my dad's house looking after him. And uh, yeah, everything's both tickety and boo today, Derek. Tickety and boo. David, now one of, the th I, one of the things I really admire is how you connect with young people. And I did hear you uh, to a group of financial services experts um, tell them how you explained uh, two kids and built rapport with them. Can you share that with uh, the audience today? The, sorry, the, so the question is, how do I build rapport with young people? Or how yeah, do I, I think tell? it's the way you described yourself to the audience when we were, we were talking. Um, Oh, right. Well, the, the way I normally break the ice and try and get rapport with an audience is by what I call taking the bullet out of the gun. Uh, so I walk on stage and I stand in front of an audience and I say, I know what you're thinking. Oh, no, it's a little fat bloke from Birmingham with a really bad haircut. There's a few awkward laughs. And then I say, I need you to get over that because it's true. I am a little fat bloke from Birmingham with a really bad haircut. And then I go into this assumptions exercise where everybody makes assumptions. And uh, I think only four audiences in 21 years have ever got the assumptions exercise right, because most of us are terrible at making assumptions. We tend to, um, if we've got two voices in our head, right? And uh, Heather and William, if you've got more than two voices, go and see a doctor, right? But typically you've got your good cop, bad cop, Starsky and Hutch, right? Starsky and Hutch in your head. I know I'm preaching to the converted here. Um, Starsky and Hutch. 
And because of the quality of people are, we like to think that we are on the side of the positive voice most of the time. But sadly, we believe the negative voice more than we do the positive voice. That's the problem. We tend to reinforce negative assumptions and we tend to play down the positive potential for situations. So I, I go in there, lock and load both barrels and have a lot of fun. We challenge audiences, whether they be corporates or uh, young adults, and we try to make it as interactive as possible. Tell me, um, is it exactly the same with young adults and, and, and corporate audiences, the way you play it? I, I present the same information in the same way. The only tweaks I make to my content are references that young people just don't get. So, you know, if, if, I, if I talk about some of the people I've interviewed in my research, Derek, young people don't know those names. So I use up-to-date names or just give the metaphor and the story rather than the name. And when you did, in, who did you interview, David, uh, on, those, uh, on that research? Because I know you did an awful lot of research for your books and your audio programmes. Well, I'm not going to list all 258 of them, but over 24 years, I have interviewed world champions, sports Olympic gold medalists, world record holders, Paralympians, scientists, inventors, academics, entertainers, authors, rock stars, millionaires, billionaires, captains of industry, one Arab oil shake, and even one politician. That's don't, talk, right. don't ask about the politician. Right. But um, <laughs> so, so all walks of life from all four corners of the world. Fantastic. And typically, typically, what questions would you ask? Give me three questions that are different that you might ask them. Well, I had a friend who, before she emigrated to Australia, was a psychoanalyst. And she said, Dave, if you're going to interview people, ask really simple questions and ask an open question followed by a closed question. Because that way, if all you do is op ask open questions, they'll feel a little overwhelmed and under pressure. Whereas if you ask an open question that's really deep and then ask a closed question, they tend to relax because they go, oh, that's an easy one. It's a simple yes or no. So I ask questions predominantly around thoughts and behaviours. Uh, in the world of personal development, I found, and again, uh, I'm trying to describe a Brummies approach to personal development. A typical Brummies approach to personal development is that most of us tend to assume it's fluffy, woolly nonsense. So when I entered the world of personal development, I, I very arrogantly and incorrectly saw that there were two camps. There was the, the logic, the system process driven analytical thinking people. And then there was the, what I arrogantly called the fluffy woolly candles people who, who just sat in a corner um, round a candle wearing sandals and never the twain shall meet. It's either thought, it's either thought and behavior or process. What I saw in the top achievers I interviewed is that it was a perfect blend of both. Really simple, very effective processes with a level of emotional intelligence that meant they were prepared to think and behave differently to everybody else. And those two things combined, that's what enables them to be more effective than the rest of us. And they were good at getting things done through people, were they? Or were they bullies? Were they psychopaths? Because I understand that uh, one in five leaders are psychopaths. Um, according to one financial journal. It takes one to know one, Derek, so it's interesting <laughs> you know that stat, but I don't see as many as that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but, but more, more, accu more accurately, um, 
I have in 258 interviews walked out of the interview and ripped up five interview notes, just five people. Every single one of those in the UK would be known and in the business world, potentially globally, two or three of them. And they got where they got by treading on people. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in, um, it's like the world of psychology studies sick people and positive psychology studies cool people. Uh, I'm interested in studying cool people. I want to know what makes people better. So I'm not interested in people who got where they got by treading on people. Uh, but I've only found five so far in 258 interviews. They are typically very good with people, although some of the extremes of sport and what I call exploration and adventure, they also tend to be superb at being by themselves as well. Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? And we, um, one of the things I've, um, one of the reasons I kept the chat show going for so long is that um, the people that come on live uh, typically today are motivated, they're self-development developers, and we're all learning all the time, which is uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely fantastic. Now you talk about four subjects you specialize in, but I know you talk about uh, all sorts of things and you're also very funny, but um, goal setting is one of your uh, specialisms. And yeah. I know you don't believe in smart goals. What's, uh, what's wrong with smart goals? And I'm directly quoting two of the 258 top achievers who said the same answer to that question, because they set us up for mediocrity at best. That, and because I'm a skeptic, I did my research. When I realized that all the top achievers I've interviewed were talking about massive, really big goals. One guy even said big, fat, hairy goals that I thought, well, if the whole world is being taught realistic and achievable goals or smart objectives, that must therefore have credibility. What's, where, where's the mismatch here? I did my research and a lot of people wrongly assume that the uh, writer and presenter Peter Drucker and the entrepreneur Peter Drucker was responsible for the acronym SMART. He is not. Oh, that made a few of you look up. Um, <laughs> Who is? Who was then? Uh, the, the person who was first correctly accredited with the acronym SMART was a guy called George T. Duran. He was a project manager in the United States, sadly no longer with us. I'd love to have had a chat with him. I've read every single thing he wrote and I've seen, to my knowledge, the only video of him ever being interviewed on the subject. He's globally quoted as saying, your goals should be SMART, and yet never once have I heard or read him saying that. What he does say on a regular basis is when working on really big projects, the steps to your goal should be smart. There, there's the difference. That's different. There's a difference between setting a smart goal and steps to a massive goal. This guy worked on multi-billion dollar water utility projects. He was a project manager for a utility company. Didn't work on realistic goals. <laughs> he did realistic steps. And so... That combined with, and, and please humour me, if you will, ladies and gentlemen, on the call this evening, out of 200, put, put up a, a sign using your hands or something, out of 258 top achievers asking them the specific question, how do you set goals? How many of them do you think answer the question by going, ooh, I set realistic and achievable goals? Leaves clues, doesn't it? Not a single one of them so far. Happy for that to be proven wrong so far. Not one of them have ever said smart, 
realistic or achievable in the answer to how do you set goals? And as I said, two of them have actually answered that question by going, you mean we're setting people up for mediocrity at best? So I do speak in a lot of business schools, although I have this love-hate relationship with them because half of them love me and half of them absolutely hate me. Same with the MBA, uh, because they're still teaching smart goals. And I go, hello? <laughs> I'm like their thorn in their side. I love it. Yeah, when I was uh, when I was in corporate world, I worried about goal setting because uh, you had to kind of achieve them or you might get a sack or you might not miss your bonus or goodness knows what. So I always set some um, small goals officially and really high goals unofficially. And I just wish people had set high goals and been able to miss them because that would have been absolutely fantastic, wouldn't it? But um, yeah. yeah. Do any corporate set big, hairy goals or whatever that, whoever dreamt that up from New York, uh, that acronym? The, when it comes to corporates, and by that I mean very large companies, they are less and less thinking bigger because they're more about command and control as a structure and an ethos. Smaller and medium-sized companies are beginning to dream a bit bigger and individuals, like I'm assuming most of us are, um, we're, we're typically, as we say in Birmingham, bang up for it. Bang up for it. Yeah, I'm bang up for it as well, Dave. That's um, absolutely brilliant. So let's turn to kids now. How do you teach kids to set big, smart, hairy goals? Getting um, eight A-levels, or no, that's wrong, isn't it? Eight GCSEs and four A-levels and going to Oxford when they live in a council flat like I did in Kensal Rise. Well, the, the two most open groups to our information tend to be chief executives and business owners in CEO peer groups and young adults from high school up to university age. It tends to be the masses in the middle who are the ones who are told what to do that are the most resistant to it because it means them taking responsibility. So I speak to chief execs and young people the same way. And the way I get them to set a big goal is to first of all, do an exercise that clearly demonstrates to them that by thinking and behaving different and using a diff slightly different process, they get a much better result. And in particular, young adults, I use a, uh, I use a memory technique, for example. Mo many of us have come across in our time memory techniques. I've taught, I've taught memory techniques now to just nearly three quarters of a million young adults and the results have been off the scale. And within half an hour, we can get audiences of two, 300 students, every single one of them in that room, raising their bar significantly. And so therefore we can put the emphasis on tiny little steps every day of half an hour can massively increase your productivity, effectiveness and output. We've even had um, four organizations, Derek, two corporate and two academic, test and measure our massive goals process only used as a daily to-do list. The average increase in productivity was 26 and percent. Wow. So when, when people, and, and, and I, can't, I can't explain the whole process on this call this evening, but if I was to simply put it as the children's playground joke, how do you eat the elephant one bite at a time? That's what we're talking about. So if we say to people just five to 10 minutes a day for 21 consecutive days, test and measure your impact, I challenge you all not to become more effective. 
I challenge you all, as long as within that five to 10 minutes a day, you eat the metaphorical sprout on your to-do list first. So you prioritize your to-do list, which is, many of us will, in fact, can I ask by a show of hands, who does a to-do list or be it daily, weekly or whatever? Most, if not all of us. Now being honest and please be brutally honest, how many of you prioritize that list in order of importance? That rings true, about half. And uh, honestly, how many of you will diligently do the most important things first? Notice I'm keeping my hand down. While people are saying that, I would do the thing that become a panic on that day first. Now that's probably the wrong answer. Well, some people will do the panic thing, Derek, but what normally happens uh, is that people will write their to-do list and then they'll go down the list and go, I can get that done, quick win. So they go off, get it done, come back, and they cross it off, feel good. They then go, I can get that done, go off, get it done, come, cross it off, feel smug. We like smug. And then, and I'm particularly looking at Martin here because I think he knows where this is going by the look on his face. You look down the list and you go, you write something on the list you've already done just so that you can cross it off to feel good. <laughs> yeah, Martin does do that. He's a good friend of for a fact. <laughs> and so the, at the end of the day, when our time, energy, motivation and resources at its least, we have the sprouts on our to-do list left to eat. It's, it's such a simple... Please don't, please don't dismiss what I'm saying as simplistic. I'm really happy if you say it's simple because I will argue with everyone toe-to-toe -to -toe forever on how top achievers make everything simple. So prioritize your to-do lists and focus like a laser beam for five to 10 minutes every single day or five minutes an hour if you can afford that time on getting the most important things done first. That way at the end of the day when everyone else's goal is getting harder, yours therefore can only get easier. Eat the sprouts first is my message. Eat the sprouts first. Yeah, I like that. But if I'm 16 and I'm doing some GCSEs in uh, three months or whatever, and uh, I want to play football, this is taking me back to my childhood, which is much more important than uh, getting some GCSEs. How do I? Uh, how do I make sure that I do the um, that I do the revision or even the learning? In my case, I didn't. Was nothing yeah. to advise. That's a great question. If anybody watching or listening to this now has got. Um, either teenage children or grandchildren or relatives of any sort please first of all listen to them you know all young people need a damn good listening to right now they typically look to our generation for reassurance even though they don't like us they look to us for reassurance and because we're scared too and we don't know all the answers they are going typically either massively extrovert compared to normal very introverted and quiet compared to normal. And we will begin to see now more extremes of behavior, overeating, undereating, um, extrovert, introvert. And we're gonna see this because they're scared. Now they're scared, Derek, when it comes to setting big goals, especially towards their exams. So what I get young people to do is, um, so Derek, let, let's just say you're a student. Here we go, this is going back a while, I know. Can you remember slates, chalk? and all the rest oh, of it. Oh, a lot yeah. of chalk, talk and chalk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And uh, so name me a subject that was your nemesis. What was what was your nemesis subject? Your Achilles heel. What was the one you really just didn't think you could do? Maths. Me too. Now, when I say this to students and say, what within maths is the problem? Typically they say all of it. And I go, no, 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 no. 
can, what's one add one? You know, two. So, aha, so you can add one. And what we find is there's normally just one or two things. Now, for me, it was algebra and fractions. Me to too. this day, me to too. this day, I still cannot do fractions. Someone on this call there today could teach me fractions in 10 minutes. So what I get them to do is for 10 days, for five to 10 minutes a day, get them to what I say, go rhino at it. So they, they must charge for five to 10 minutes a day relentlessly with everything they've got at trying to smash that fear of fractions or algebra or whatever it is. Because if they do that, and I urge them to accept the fact that for the first two, maybe three days, they will fail, get upset, angry, frustrated, and want to walk away. But they must commit for 10 days. In 21 years, I'm yet to have a student come back and say that didn't work. Flipped to that, I have got hundreds of examples of students. What, my favorite is of a little kid called Matthew in Manchester who looked like a mini me, short, chubby guy, rosy cheeks, and a wicked haircut. Side partying done with an axe. And he used to have panic attacks every time maths was even mentioned in class. Seriously, he had to leave the room. And I said, what is it in maths? He went, everything. I went, no, 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 same story. Turns out the thing that absolutely stumped him was multiplying decimals. And I said, so other stuff's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, but they're, they're probably gonna do multiplying decimals. I said, okay, will you do 10 minutes a day for 21 days, smash it? I said, yeah. I said, will you accept the fact that you're going to get really cheesed off? You're going to want to walk away first two or three days. You're probably going to fail. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. 21 days, 10, day, 10 minutes a day, go. 21 days later, I have a video of young Matthew sitting in the head teacher's office. Now, I'm sure you were much better behaved than I, but if anyone can remember ever being sent to the head teacher's office in school, it was never for a good thing. So he was under stress already. This young lad smashes 10 multiplying decimal questions, and then him and the head teacher look into the video camera and go, Rhino. And, and this kid, it changed his life. Now that is quite a bold statement, but that is his parents' words, not mine. It changed his life because it made him just flip from, I can't, it can't be done, it's impossible, I get panic attacks, to five to 10 minutes a day, I can do whatever I set my mind to. And do you know what? Every single one of us can do the same. With respect to every single one of us on this call this evening, we're playing at it regardless of the level of success that we've already experienced in our life. We play at it. We deliberately seek safety, comfort, security, instead of going a little bit rhinoceros and having a bit of a charge at things. 3% is the average, two, two and a half to three percent of the time, every single one of us have excelled. We have done things that other people and sometimes ourselves would never have dreamt possible of achieving. But that's two to three percent of the time. The rest of the time we allow ourselves the luxury of mediocrity because it's easy. You're very funny. I always laugh when I watch you. I could, well, I could hear you speak 20 times. <laughs> Come on, what's this rhino? I've seen a few slides of rhino when you've been presenting to big audiences. Uh, where did you get that from? There's an American author called Scott Alexander who wrote a book called Rhinoceros Success. I dismissed it several times as fluffy, woolly nonsense because that's what I did back then. Uh, it sold millions and millions of books. It was a story about cows and rhinos. It was only when I interviewed the positive psychologists, the pioneers of that industry, and 
all of their research validated Scott Alexander's book, and yet none of them had ever heard of him or read the book. So there was a link. And what Scott suggested is that in the book is that there's two to 3% of the population who naturally behave like rhinos. See what they want, go. They're not elephants. They don't tread on people to get where they're going in a straight line. Rhinoceros charge at goals, typically Land Rovers and Jeeps, but they, they charge at the goal. They're nurturing animals. They're actually one of the most nurturing animals on the planet in terms of looking after the people around them. So they take people with them on the goal. The 97% of the population tend to behave like cows. Now, I don't, it's not my intention to make anybody on this call wince this evening, but let's be honest. How many of us deliberately, at times, hang around with the same group of people, family, friends, or work peers and colleagues, because it's safe, comfortable, and easy? How many of us will look out, metaphorically, in the field over the fence and go, I want that, but I'll probably fail I'll stay here and keep doing what I've always done. Which in the cow metaphor is chew grass, moo, milky, milky. And that's quoted Scott Alexander, not me, don't shoot the messenger. But he says, honestly, 97% of the, sorry, 97% of the time, all of us go for normal, safe, secure, easy. 3% of the time, we're awesome. How about we flip it? I'm not a personal, I mean, you only got to look at me. You know, I'm not a shiny suited, white teeth, matching tie and cufflinks, pointy finger speaker. I'm not one of the guys who, hey, work, work hard and you too can achieve and then sod off. You know, I'm from Birmingham. I want to help you with, with how to from the top achievers. So what, what, what cows do and rhinos do is they accept that 3% of the time we're going to have cow days. That's the reality. I'm not, I'm not going to say, hey, think positive, think rhino, everything's groovy. No, that's not life. I'm from Birmingham. Life sucks sometimes. And in fact, every single one of us, I bet, in the last 18 months have had cow days. I know I have. The truth is that we have cow days 3% of the time. That means instead of 97% a bit moo, how about we go rhino 97% and just see what happens for a bit? And uh, if you do that, you can thank me with Belgium beer. German Pilsners will be acceptable. But please, the biggest courtesy any of you can do for me this evening is try and prove me wrong. I love skeptics. If you're a cynic, there's no hope for you. How's that working as a plan? But if, if you're a skeptic, I love you. Please try and prove me wrong. That's when we get our best results. Uh, I know, Derek, you've probably heard me bang on about this story before, but it's my favourite one out of the lot. One of the first guys to try and prove me wrong wanted to become a best-selling children's author. His second book was so successful, it beat J.K. Rowling to Children's Book of the Year, outsold J.K. Rowling. He had to give up his job travelling the world with his book publisher, and now 24 books, books later, he's one of the highest-ranking children's authors in the world in history. And all he did was try and prove me wrong. Who was that, Who was that Dave? His name is Andrew Cope. He wrote a series of dogs for his uh, series of dogs. He wrote a series of books about his dogs for his children called Spy Dog. Basically, a British Scooby Doo. Okay. <laughs> so the, the, the thing I'm puzzling on here, and people will be watching my body language, is how you get this through. Um, well, let's take the fifty thousand um, students on this this amazing Zoom call, where presumably you were sitting in. Um, Brummy land with your computer, hoping everything, hope, hoping the kit would work. 
But how do you get through to, you know, 48,000 of the uh, 50,000 sitting there? So, I mean, who's this geezer coming on to uh, we've got to listen to when we've got better things to do? How do you get through to them? It's the whole goal setting process is wrapped into a really, really simple model of a triangle or a pyramid. So um, earlier I talked about having a to-do list, prioritizing the list. We get people to put the most important tasks of their day or their massive goal list into the bottom foundation blocks of a pyramid. The next important on the row further up and so on and so on and so on until they've got a pyramid half full of stuff. The most important tasks are in the bottom blocks. And then we encourage them with the teacher's support to every single week try and cross a block off, starting with the most important on the bottom row. If they can visually see that they're crossing off boxes further up because they're easy, the quick wins, very quickly you can visualize, I'm sure guys, your, 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 your pyramid is, depending upon your age, gonna turn into either a game of Kaplunk or Tetris. It's just gonna implode because it does not built right. So it focuses you visually, mentally, remote, um, mentally, emotionally, and physically straight back down to the next empty box, the priority. And if you keep doing the priority tasks, your day gets easier, everyone else's days get harder. And students, I mean, Derek, other than my family, it's what young adults have done with this that's the most thing that fills me with the most pride in my life. Um, I love working with companies and business owners, but young people, they just use it. We have had tens of thousands of students go up by one to four grades inside four months having fun. We have had students, whilst still in education, become British and European sporting champions. We've had three become millionaires whilst still in education. We've had one student who was on 24-hour suicide watch end up not only not needing a suicide watch, but writing a tips booklet that went into every school library in the country and was invited to Downing Street to meet the Prime Minister. And I could go on and on and on with um, a good friend of ours, Chris Akabusi. He shared me a quote in his interview. Um, for those who don't know, Chris Akabusi is a gold medal athlete uh, for Great Britain from the 1970s and early 80s. And he says, top achievers should be looked into, not up to. And I went, sounds great, Chris, but I'm from Birmingham. What does that mean? He said, Dave, if somebody's truly outstanding at the thing you want to be great at, don't put them on a pedestal. Life isn't X factor. Study them, hunt them, stalk them, go through their bins, make crank phone calls, hang outside the house at night, looking through the curtain going, here's Will Kintish. No, don't do that, Will. If you do that, say Derek told you to do it. And he said, track down a top achiever who has got the skill set you need, but at the very highest level. Top achievers are fearless at saying, I need help, but they go to the very top people. Most of us are guilty of settling for information from average people at best. That's why we get average information. I encourage encourage all of us to find a skill set that we know we've been putting off getting that will take us from there to there like that if we had it. It doesn't matter whether it's financial acumen, man management, personality profiling skills, it doesn't matter if it's um, PowerPoint or, or, or Excel or it doesn't matter what that is. Presentation, go to depth and negotiation, will for networking and it doesn't matter what the skill set is you need track down the best man or woman you can find on the planet with that skill set ask them to coach you 
just using this tiny little thing that most of us are sitting here going, well, that's obvious. Yeah. How many of us have done that? I mean, gone to number one in the world on that subject. We've had people become, become world number one musicians. We've had people become um, multimillionaires. We've had people uh, become sporting champions. But my favorite, my favorite thing, Derek, out of all of these stories was a young lady in a sixth form, which is I suppose like college in America, um, a sixth form, a 17 year old young lady, wanted to go into international politics, but she was crippled with insecurity and fear and shyness. Uh, she overcame her fear, wrote the letter of her life to the White House. She re received a two page handwritten letter from Barack Obama, that at the end of which agreed to coach and mentor her which we have on good authority, she was the first and to date only international student ever to be afforded that. Why? Because she asked. Could you imagine on this call, the people we all know, the combined knowledge, skills, experience and expertise that's on this call right now. With, and I mean this with absolute love and respect. I don't mean it to upset people, but if I do, hey, that's, you know, you're gonna spill, spill milk, <laughs> but we're playing at it. What's interesting, David, is that so we've got 22 people on this call who will influence at least 10 or 20 people in the next month. Uh, a lot of people don't realise they will influence them, but they will. Um, but some of us still don't know how to talk to young people. So there'll be some grannies and granddads on here. Forgive me for saying that. I'll probably get shot. Probably people won't tune in again. So at least we'll know who the granny and granddads are, despite the... Uh, despite the Zoom um, fixing of the, uh, of the wrinkles, which I can see you've had done and I've had done, which is, uh, which is great. Um, how do you talk to young people? And I see that on your website, you've got a book called Big Mistakes That Teachers Make. I'm curious about those two things. So let's take, uh, let's take Martin on there. He's a good friend of mine who's from the Midlands, from Leicester. He's got a difficult uh, granddaughter that he wants to talk to and he's not getting through to her. What, what should he do? When communicating with young people, we need to first of all accept rather than understand that they're different to us as we were to our parents. We can moan about it all we want. That won't solve the problem. They're different. We need to understand and accept those differences and communicate in ways that they accept. So if you're very, very serious as a person, you might need to lighten up a bit because they do not have short attention spans, but we have programmed them for short interactions. I repeat that. We, our generation, have programmed them that way. They do not have short. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to hold an audience of 250 teenagers for three hours and then get a standing ovation at the end of it. You know, it, we've got to work with what's true, but we have hardwired them. If it's one-to-one, I would first of all ask them questions just ask them questions and listen and when i say listen use the cliche of don't prepare what you're going to say when they shut up listen to them when they've verbalized something to you clarify what they've said i'm i'm, I'm talking to you here Derek. i mean you, you're probably saying dave this is just negotiation skills it is a negotiation it is, it is negotiation exactly so if they say, um, if they say to you, nothing, I'm just tired all the time. Say, so you're just tired all the time, anything else. So reaffirm you've understood, you know, is that right? You're just tired all the time. Why do you think that is? Typically they will say their favorite words, don't know. 
Yeah, so, so, oh, you're tired. Okay. Um, what are the consequences of being tired? Now, they like talking about feelings and emotions. So they will happily tell you how hard life is when they're tired. And then it's, take it out of them and give them an opportunity to metaphorically coach their friend. So frequently, if a, if a young adult is explaining very challenging behaviour, I rather than say, so what are you going to do about it? What could you do? I'll say, your best friend, because they love their best friends, don't they? They like their best friends more than they like us, let's be honest. So if you were coaching your very best friend who was just being tired all the time, what three things could they do? What would you advise them? What three things would you advise them to do? And which one do you think they should do? And then ask them three magic questions at the end. And these, these three magic questions would come from something called the Sedona technique. If anyone's familiar with Sedona, it's an emotional intelligence model for letting go of very unhelpful feelings. But I use it in this context. So Derek, if you were to say to me, okay, Dave, I'll do five to 10 minutes a day. I would ask you three questions, Derek. I'll say, could you do five to 10 minutes a day? What would your answer be? Yes, Dave. Okay. So if you could do it, would you? Yes, Dave. When? Uh, I'll probably start in the next month. Okay. How will that work as a plan, Derek? Uh, might not work too well, I suppose. Okay. So what would you advise your best mate to do? Start tomorrow. If I can help you, let me know, Derek. Good skills. Great questions, Dave. Great questions. Yeah, so, so just ask questions are always the answer for all of us, aren't they? But especially with young people. And listen, listen, listen. What Was it Covey? Seek to understand them. Genuinely understand them. Don't, don't let it... We need to remember that our generation have royally screwed them over. Yes, they are freaks of nature with lots of quirks. Yes, they are... They are more intelligent intellectually and academically than our, any, of our, any of us ever will be. They, they have been educated better and to a higher level than typically we were and ever will be, especially internationally as well. Um, but they are an emotional lump. They don't trust authority because of politicians, what they've done, banking and finance. They don't necessarily trust financial institutions and pensions because of what our generation have done to them they're now looking to what's happened with covid and they look to us as to what should we do and we're going oh. so that they are genuinely scared i mean i the, the same year groups that i used to go into and just rock it now i'm having to work three times harder just to get them to smile and interact just since covid nothing's changed just just how scared they are so it communicate with them just show them you love them and and try to serve them serve them as best as we can if they and if and tell them your mistakes before you tell them your successes they trust people who are not real sorry who are not shiny they don't trust the shiny suited pointy fingered speaker they don't trust the gold medal athlete in a tracksuit waving four gold medals because to them that's lovely but it's unattainable for them they want to see people like us who have fallen over and to use my childhood expression we've had scabby knees a few times and we've got better 
and we've had a few successes, we've had a few knockbacks, but we need to be courageous enough to tell them our mistakes and our failings as well. Dave, one last question before we're, we're nearly out of time. Um, I can see Martin thinking, um, but yeah, my granddaughter's always on her phone, always on social media to her friends on Facebook. How do I stop her doing that? And I don't even understand how to uh, work Facebook. Forgive me, Martin, if it's not true, but I think it is. <laughs> well, you don't try and stop her because that is a generation's way of communicating. As much as we don't like it, that is the way it's happening. It may take another generation before it goes back to human interaction again. But the one thing Martin could do, hypothetically, Martin, would be talk to her on the phone, message her, do a TikTok video, <laughs> or 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 if if genuine and it's got to be sincere this last one it's got to be sincere if any of us do this from a place of insincerity or manipulation you will be spotted as a fake a mile off but genuinely if there is something a young adult can do to help you ask them for their help wow yeah ask them for their help they want to feel valued and appreciated they don't want to be talked at they want to be listened to and appreciated. So ask for their help. Fantastic. David Heiner, thank you so much for joining me and giving us all those tips has given us a lot of things to think about. Tell me, David, how do people get hold of you um, if they want to um, get any more information? Uh, I'm over the, the usual channels like a rash you don't want to speak to the doctor about. Please connect with me on LinkedIn and YouTube if you want to or Facebook. Um, if you have if you enjoyed this please do leave me a lovely recommendation on linkedin if you haven't leave it for derek and uh, uh yeah that's about it really davidheiner.com that'll get to me fantastic and the one thing i stole from you david when i heard you speak and i'm unashamedly i stole from you i do credit you sometimes but not always is you said uh never be on time be early and I've been passing that one on the way you said it. You say it much more eloquently than me, but actually in negotiating in life, in sales, on everything, you want to be the first one in the room, the first one there, the person on time, because you, you pick up so much extra, um, like we do joining these Zoom calls um, early. David Heiner, thank you. Will you stay on and answer any questions that the... Uh, the audience have got and uh, if you're watching this on youtube or listening to this on the negotiators podcast please like it please get in touch with uh, david or please get in touch with me and thanks so much for joining us